Thanks, Pastor Brent. Good morning, church family. It's good to be with you this morning and frankly to sing of God's greatness and to be able to lay down our our burdens and our cares at his feet in the worship set. So thank you, DJ, for leading us to worship our great God. I also want to say thanks to Pastor Chris who preached last weekend. That allowed our family uh, to get away for the week to Lake Okoboji. Um, We got to do a little camping. Uh, It was just a lot of fun to be out in God's creation and, and to just spend time together as a family and as you'll see from some of the photos, we got to experience a lot of God's creation. I think there were frogs and toads and lizards and fish, lots of, of slimy things if you catch the, the kind of similarities there. But um, it was just a restful week away with our family, so um, thanks, Pastor Chris. If you're new here, my name is Nick Lees, and I serve as the senior pastor. I have the privilege of opening up God's Word with you this morning. And as we get ready to turn our attention to God's Word, I just want to start by acknowledging something. This has been a hard year, right? It's been a very weird year for all of us. And in fact, it continues to impose itself upon us, changing the very fabric of our society and how we function even. Some of us who are here today have lost their jobs or been put on furlough or had their hours reduced. Others are facing medical challenges or facing uh, difficulties that they didn't plan for or expect. There's the stigma that's associated with getting sick these days. And all of us have had to adapt to the ever-changing societal standards and expectations for how we live and how we conduct ourselves. And as Brent just mentioned, right, one of the more recent ones is, what do we do as schools? How How do we handle our kids and their education? But the challenges for our nation are not small. They are tremendous. But it won't do anyone any good to bury your head in the sand And hope that this all just blows over soon. I want to remind us that this is what our sovereign God has allowed us to face this year. And so how you respond to the challenges is of the utmost importance. This is something that I've had to preach to myself this week. And so today the sermon is much to me as it is to any of you. You can listen in as I preach to myself. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have tremendous truths and resources that are on our side to help us respond in a way that pleases him. And so as we come into the text this morning, what I hope to do is remind us of the realities that supersede our immediate circumstances or hardships that we may be facing. I want to give you hope in the midst of trials and tribulations. I want to challenge those of you who may be tempted or have already given into the flesh and the desires of the enemy and to the fears that he wants us to face. I know that's what I need this morning, to be reminded of the supremacy of Jesus. I need to hear how Jesus is greater. He is superior. There's no one like him, that he has the ability to calm the storm, and he is Lord over both the physical and spiritual realms. And it's personally been a sweet balm to my own soul this week as I've studied these truths and tried to allow them to meditate and and just saturate into my own soul this week. And so my hope, again, is that no matter how you came in this morning, whether you were discouraged and feeling defeated, or perhaps you came in encouraged and excited for what's ahead, or somewhere in between there, that there would be hope offered to you today, that there would be a reminder of who Christ is and and what he's done for you today. We're going to be in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew. It's a study that we've called Kingdom Expansion. And over the first seven chapters earlier this year, we learned who Jesus was and what his mission is. Jesus is the son of David. 
He is the son of Abraham. He's the Messiah, the son of God. And he's come to save his people from their sins. He's come to show us that the kingdom of God, his rule and reign is closer than ever before. Or revealed more clearly than ever before. It's always been his rule and reign. And he's called sinful human beings like us to repent. Right? That's the only appropriate response. And our, our wicked rebellion against God demands that we must repent. We must turn from that and follow him in humble obedience. And then he showed us, well, this is what it looks like to follow him in the Sermon on the Mount. And now as we enter into chapters 8 through 10, that's where we've been over the last couple of weeks. Jesus is now demonstrating the reality of the kingdom in the lives of the people to whom he's ministering. Right? He's been demonstrating God's authority and power over illness and over demons. That's what the first 17 verses of chapter 8 were all about. And then last week we heard in Matthew 8, 18 through 22, that Jesus' response after teaching and showing and demonstrating the authority of God was to call the people to follow him. He gave a, a teaching on discipleship. Matthew wants his readers to see that after you understand the authority of Jesus, the only appropriate response is to follow him. Drop what you're doing, count the cost, put Jesus first, and follow him. Go and live a life in obedience to him. That is the appropriate response for us. And so let's see where Matthew takes us next. So we're going to go back into Matthew chapter 8. That's page 474 if you grabbed one of the Bibles on the way in. And we're going to pick back up in verses 23 all the way through chapter 9, verse 8 today. Let's see what Matthew continues to teach us about Jesus. I'll give you a second to get there. Here's what he says. Matthew 8, 23 says this. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. 
And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. The supremacy of Jesus That's what uh, Matthew is declaring. It's what's all over this passage. It's what you're seeing on display in this text. Let me define supremacy and then let's unpack how Jesus exemplifies this concept. Supremacy is the state or condition of being superior to all others in authority, power, or status. Now, the interesting thing about Jesus is Jesus is superior to all others in authority, power, and status. He's he's superior in all three of those ways. And my intention today is to show you how Matthew is demonstrating the supremacy of Jesus in this text and how the reality of Jesus' supremacy should change everything for us. And so in the time that we have left, let's discuss three realities of Jesus' supremacy that demand a response. Three realities of Jesus' supremacy that demand a response. And here's our first reality. Jesus is supreme in status. Jesus is supreme in status. And when we say status, what we mean is position or standing. And all throughout this passage, Jesus' status is, is lurking in the details. We see his status as it relates to the creation, as it relates to the demons, Uh, to the people that he's interacting with, and even to God the Father. Here in this first scenario, if you look back at how it started, right, he's on the boat with his disciples, and a storm breaks out. What's Jesus doing when the storm breaks out? He's sleeping, right? He's sleeping. It's a reminder of his humanity. What do you do when you're done with a long, hard day of work? You rest, So as a man, Jesus is weary from a long, hard day of ministry, and he decides to rest. But what happens when the storm breaks out? The disciples are, they're they're afraid. They don't know what to do. So they come to him and they say, Lord, help. Save us. We're perishing. They don't know what to do, so they say, well, let's go get Jesus. We need his help. And what does Jesus do? Well, first he rebukes them. Then he rebukes the winds and the sea. And he brings calm to the situation. Any of you ever do that? Rebuke the storms and have them go quiet? Please don't say yes. <laughs> right? Since moving to uh, our, our home in Johnston earlier this year, we've had the opportunity, if you want to call it that, to ride out two, two storms. Uh, one had a tornado within a half mile of our house, and the other one, I swear, it was right overhead. It sounded like a passenger jet going over. Um, thankfully, there was no tornado. It was just heavy winds and and strong rain and some hail. But you know what didn't happen in either of those events? My family didn't come running to me and say, Dad, Nick, save us! Right? That's not what they said. 
Instead, they were saying, Dad, Nick, get in the basement. Why are you out on the porch watching the storm? Right, because that's what we do, right? That's, that's why men have a shorter life expectancy. But why, why would they not come and ask for me to save them? It's because they know my status. They know that I can't rebuke the, the winds or the seas. Or, and they're not going to respond to me. I'm a mere man. That's not my position. That's not my place. Jesus is much more than a mere man. Jesus is supreme in status. His position, his standing is superior to all others. And that, rema- that makes us, you know, we've got to remember what Matthew's already taught us in the gospel. If we go again all the way back to the very beginning, the first three chapters, you know, Matthew was teaching his readers that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one whom Israel has been waiting on to rescue them. Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's that promised offspring through whom all the nations would be blessed. Jesus is the son of David. He's the rightful king who will rule forever. And Jesus is the son of God. Literally God with us. The one who has come to save his people from their sins. That's Jesus' status. That's his identity. And the disciples don't fully understand that yet. Which is why they ask this question in verse 27. What sort of man is this? That even the winds and sea obey him. Right, they're still wrestling with that. Who is Jesus? What's his status? Who, who is it? What's his identity? And you have to imagine, right, after this experience, man, that had to have profoundly shaped their understanding of who Jesus is. Here's the deal. The reality of, of Jesus' supreme status ought to impact you. It ought to provoke a response in you this morning, just as it did in the disciples so many years ago on that evening. Who is Jesus? He's the one to whom the, even the winds and the waves must obey. The one above all else. Not merely a man, but the Son of God. And what we see in this passage that we study today is most of the people in the passage don't get it. They don't recognize the supremacy of Jesus. And it was a hindrance to them. It, it led them to respond poorly to Jesus. What about you? How do you respond to Jesus and his status? You have the benefit of, of having the entirety of God's word available to you. You have the opportunity to know that he is the son of God. Has the world known a greater miracle than the incarnation of God? God the son willingly chose to step down and enter into his creation to put on flesh to make a way for his people to be rescued and redeemed. He came to live a perfect sinless life so that he could be a substitute on the cross. The very thing we were singing about earlier. He came to bear the wrath of God and to drink that cup dry so that his people could be saved. This is the Jesus of we, that we read about in Philippians chapter 2 where it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because Jesus has done that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus 
every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the supreme one. His supremacy is all over that text. And he, as the supreme one, exercised humility to enter this world as the God-man to accomplish the redemption of his people. He is the one who is exalted above every other name. His status is such that the knee of everyone will bow no matter where you are and no matter what you believe. This is the same Son of God that we read about at the end of the Bible in Revelation 19. The one who is going to come again in his supremacy to finally establish his rule and reign on the earth. Listen to what Revelation 19 tells us. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. (laughs) King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus will come again with all superiority and all authority and all power to finish what he started, to exercise judgment on the earth. The miracle of the incarnation and the promise of the second coming demand a response from us today. And the response that they demand is of faith and of humility. Of recognizing that Jesus is God and he's supreme in his status. No one compares to him. And he alone is worthy of your allegiance and your worship. He alone is able to help in your time of need. He's the judge to whom we must all give an account one day. We'll all stand before him. It's good to have him on our side. This is the beauty of of Jesus' supreme status, that he will exercise his position for the good of those who are his people, those who have responded to the call to turn from sin and to follow him. We have an eternal hope, a hope that cannot be taken from us. And we're going to talk in more detail about that in just a few minutes, but for now let's turn our attention to the second way And the third reality of Jesus' supremacy. Jesus is supreme in authority and power. Jesus is supreme in authority and power. And I'm cramming two points in one sermon point here because they are so intertwined. They're so interconnected in this passage. And frankly, so was the status of Jesus. It was hard not to talk about all three at once. Jesus is supreme. There's no one like him in status and authority and power. And in the Greek, the word for authority and power is actually the same word. It's exousia. It's the word that Jesus uses in chapter 9, verse 6, to explain that he has the right to control or to command everything. And not only does he have the right to do that, 
but he has the power to do that. Which is why both words are here in this sermon point. He has the authority and the power. It's not just that he has the right to make it so, but he has the ability to carry it out. No one is greater than Jesus. Let's think through again what we learned from this passage. We're going to walk back through it to just see the supremacy of his authority and power. If you look at verses 23 through 27, right, we see his supreme power and authority over creation. No one else can rebuke the sea. No one else can rebuke the storms and have them obey. Only the Lord of creation can do that. And we see that in the, in the scriptures, that the creation responds to its creator Let me show you just two accounts of that from the Psalms. In Psalm 106, verse 9, we hear this. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. He led them through the deep as through a desert. And then in Psalm 104, verses 5 through 7, He, God, set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains at your rebuke. They fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. God alone, the creator alone, has the authority and the power to rebuke the creation, and it listens to him. And Jesus has that power and authority because Jesus is God. Then you get into verses 28 through 34, and you see his supreme authority and power over demons. Let's look at those verses again. Do you notice in this passage it says the demon-possessed men were so fierce that no one could pass that way? No one except Jesus, right? What happens when the supreme one comes to visit? These fierce demon-possessed men come to him and they're crying out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? These demons are the only one in this section of Scripture that we're studying today who fully recognize who Jesus is. And yet they hate him for it. But they recognize he's supreme in authority and power, that they must bow the knee, that one day he will torment them for all eternity. And that's a reference to the eternal judgment that we see in Revelation chapter 20. When they come into the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, these demons are reduced to begging. We don't know why Jesus grants their request to go into the pigs. We might surmise that it was so that he would have a chance to interact with the townspeople. But we don't know for sure. But the point is that Jesus is supreme in his authority and power, even over the spiritual realm. Demons have to bow the knee at the name of King Jesus. And when he says, go, they must obey. That ought to be incredibly comforting to those of us who know Jesus Christ and who have faith in him. Right? Our God is powerful and the demons have nothing in comparison to him. I really, as I was you know, studying for this passage, I really appreciate how one commentator put it. He said, there's a spiritual battle here, but it's one-sided. I thought that was very succinct. It's a great truth. Right? The forces of darkness are nothing in comparison to our great God and his supreme power and authority. That ought to be a hope-filled statement for us today. Jesus is greater. He is better. He is supreme. And so as a believer, you can have great hope 
knowing that, that if you're in Christ, you're secure. And you have the hope of eternity. God is greater than our enemy. We even read in the epistle of 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Right? The Spirit of God indwells believers of Jesus Christ. And he enables us to resist the lies and the temptations of the enemy. In the book of Ephesians, we're told that the Holy Spirit seals believers for the day of redemption. That's a promise and a guarantee that no one can snatch you from the Father's hand. You rest secure in Christ. It also means that no demon can possess a believer because a Christian is filled with God's Holy Spirit. And the reason why I'm, I'm talking about this this morning is because I don't want you to be unnecessarily filled with fear. To, to fear the enemy in a way that you don't need to. The only influence that he has in a believer's life is the influence you allow him to have when you believe his temptations and enticements. He's the tempter. He's the deceiver. But he's not the possessor of Christians. And so, Christians in the room, right? you must resist the enemy by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And it's good for us to know the one who is supreme in authority and power over the demons. I hope you would say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for setting us free from sin and death. Thank you for protecting us in this spiritual war that we're engaged in. May we take up your armor daily in fighting for holiness. And if you're listening this morning, whether online or here in the room, and you don't believe in Jesus Christ, I can't give you that same hope. Outside of God's Holy Spirit, you are vulnerable to the enemy's deception and possession, just like the demon-possessed men that we read about in this story. The only hope for any of us is faith in Jesus Christ. Let's look at the last few verses here. In chapter 9 and verses 1 through 8, we also saw Jesus' supreme power and authority over sins, and illness. And in this passage, this is where he's making his most amazing claim yet. Right? He, he says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And do you notice the response of the scribes? Right? They're immediately irate. They're not okay with this. They, they know that Jesus is claiming to do what only God can do. Forgiving sins. And so they say, you're blaspheming. Right? They don't recognize who Jesus is. So what does Jesus do? He responds in a way that demonstrates his supreme authority and power. I'm going to modernize it a bit for us, but here's kind of what he says. He gets the gist of it. Look, guys, it's easier for me to say your sins are forgiven because you can't see and evaluate whether it's happened or not. So let me say what is harder. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now you can see that I have the authority and the power to heal illness, and to forgive sins. Jesus is demonstrating his authority to do what he had been sent to do, to rescue his people from their sins. And his miraculous healing of the paralytic shows that he does have that power and that authority, the power and authority of God to do these things. That's what he was trying to drive home to the scribes. 
And Matthew's goal, as the author of this gospel, he's trying to help his readers understand Jesus is supreme. Power and authority and status. There is no one comparable to Jesus. And that's consistent with what we see in other places of Scripture. Let me speak of Hebrews 1 for a second here. Hebrews 1, verses 3 and 4, we read this about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior, hear it there, superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The whole book of Hebrews is about the superiority of Jesus. He's greater than all. We also hear this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Paul writes this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus screams from the scriptures. This is who he is. He is the co-eternal, co-existent, co-equal son of God. And he alone is worthy of your worship. His supremacy demands a response. Which brings us to our final point evaluate your response to King Jesus. Evaluate your response to King Jesus. Right? In light of all that he is and all that he's done, every single human being must evaluate how we are responding to King Jesus. So, I would encourage you to ask yourself, is my response to King Jesus the appropriate one? In light of all I'm learning about who he is And what he has done. Let's first look at the different types of responses we saw in the passage today. On one end of the spectrum, we see the outright hostility of the demons and of the scribes. The demons' response to King Jesus is hateful opposition. They know who he is. They recognize his supremacy, but they hate him for it. They don't want to bow the knee. They seek to do whatever they can in their time tempt, to deceive, to cause destruction. That's what demons exist to do, to entice men and women, boys and girls, to follow your selfish ambitions, the desires of your flesh. They're opposed to Jesus. The scribes are skeptical. And because they're skeptical, because they don't recognize who Jesus is, they are against him. They refuse to, to recognize who he is and that he has power and authority over them. And frankly, that's the same position that every unbelieving man or woman finds themselves in today. 
you are refusing to acknowledge Jesus for who he is and what he's done. That means you're putting yourself at odds with him. Right? There is no middle ground. You either believe and follow him, or you don't believe and you're opposed to him. You're either all in or all out. And if you're all out, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to live under my own authority, which is setting up an opposing kingdom to God's kingdom. That's rebellion against the King of kings and Lord of lords. You're inviting him to oppose you and to come against your kingdom. So which is it for you? Are you all in? Do you recognize Jesus is a a power and authority and status, that he is supreme and superior to all others? Or are you still stuck living for yourself, opposed to the kingdom of God, refusing to recognize who he is and what he's done? And if you're over here, if you're all out, if you are still living for yourself, what is it that's preventing you from recognizing who Jesus is and what he's done? Are there questions that you need to have answered? Are there doubts or fears that you're, you're wrestling with? Let's talk about those things. I would love nothing more than to sit down, or if it's not me, one of our other pastors, or someone that you trust that you know is walking with Jesus, let them share. Let them hear what's going on in your heart, the things you're wrestling with, the doubts that you have, so we can figure this out together. But this is an eternally significant matter, and we don't have any guarantee that we have tomorrow. So let's have a little urgency in figuring it out. I'm begging you today. Now, I imagine for for many who are here in the room and listening online, you're not in the position of outright hostility against Jesus. Perhaps your response is more akin to the disciples and to the Gentile townspeople of the gatherings. They responded in fear. They had a lack of faith. We heard Jesus' rebuke was, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. And he rebuked them because they were failing to remember who he is. Jesus is the Messiah, the one who has come to save his people from their sins. But they're overwhelmed by their immediate circumstances. They see the storm and it seems like the biggest thing to them. And their fear begins to drive their unfaithful response. Likewise, the Gentile townspeople, they responded with a lack of faith too. Do you remember what happened there? Right, the demons went into the pigs. Pigs jumped off the cliff into the water. And the herdsmen ran into town. Right? And they, they began telling the townspeople, here's what we just saw. Here's what just happened. And so everyone comes out of the city to come to Jesus. And you'd expect that they'd want to meet him. They'd want to know, by what power are you doing this? What is going on here? Maybe they'd even be excited when they see these two formerly demon-possessed men who are now in their right mind. They'd say, oh, Awesome. They're they're back with us again. That's not what happens. These people beg Jesus to leave. They don't want to know who he is. They don't want to sit under his power or authority. They just want him gone. And maybe they were desiring to go back to just the way things always had been. Their quiet, peaceful lives where they feel like they're in control. I know that as I evaluate my response to King Jesus... Lately, I found myself in this camp, in this fear and lack of faith camp, being fearful rather than faithful, 
And so as I got to work through this text this week, this is what God has been revealing to me. Nick, you're letting fear rather than faith dictate your life. Rather than being in awe of the supremacy of Jesus, you're letting your circumstances, your fears that are in your heart and your mind overwhelm you. And I know for me, it's been a day-by-day and even hour-by-hour battle within my heart and mind to remember that Jesus is supreme, not my fears. And so, you know, as I'm working on this, I tend to do my study on Wednesday, and uh, goal is to have the outline and, and things like that done by Wednesday and picked out so I can give them on Thursday. And I was spending some time on Thursday reviewing where I'd, where I'd landed and reading these sermon points again, and I just started laughing as I realized, oh my goodness, Lord, I need to hear this. I'm not believing that you are supreme in my circumstances right now. I'm letting fear rule me rather than you. And I don't know that I'd put my finger on it by that point in the week before then. Lord, I'm being just like the disciples. I'm failing to recognize who you are and what you've done. I'm not allowing those realities to change the way that I'm thinking and the way that I'm processing my circumstances. Begin to believe those lies. Well, if I was just in control, things would be different. Things would be better. And maybe for you, that's been the same. I don't know what your week has been like. Maybe for you, it's not fear. Maybe for you, it's anger. You're angry about some things in your life. Things are not going the way you want. People are opposing you that you don't like it. Or maybe it's not anger. Maybe for you, it's sadness. Maybe you're, you're, you're depressed by what's going on in the world around you or in your own family, in your own life. Whatever your particular struggle may be, I want to point you back to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's so sweet to remember that Jesus is in control. He is superior to all else in power, authority, and status. He knows what's going on in your life. These things that are happening, they're not unknown to him. And you're not alone in that battle. He is with you. And they're not too great for him. He's over them. He's superior to them. So brother or sister, please remember, Jesus has not forsaken you. Now, I appreciated the passage that that Pastor Mark shared at our prayer meeting last Sunday. Uh, He said that this particular passage has been a comfort for them as they wrestle with their son's recent cancer diagnosis. It's Isaiah 41, verse 10, which says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you hear the truths and the promises in that passage? When you know God, when you recognize that he is with you, and you know what he's able to do, that faith drives out fear. He says, fear not, for I am with you. God is the one who acts. God is the one who works. That's a powerful promise. Consider the disciples. We know from reading Scripture that they don't stay in this position of being fearful and lacking faith. The testimony of the Scriptures is that these men were transformed from 12 scared, scattered, and skeptical men to one of the most powerful missionary forces the world has ever known. God does a mighty work in them as they understand who Jesus is, as they observe the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, and they begin to understand all that that meant for their lives. There's a transformation that takes place. 
Listen to how they respond after they've been through all of that. This is in Acts chapter 5. It says, When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. These men are no longer driven by fear. Oh no, they're, they're ruled by faith. Faith in the supremacy of Jesus. He is greater. And each one of these men would go on to either be martyrs for their faith or to remain faithful in the midst of extreme persecution. And so if God can transform these, these weak men's faith into a response, or weak men's fear, well, and faith, into a position of strong faith, then he can do the same for you and for me. And so may we be a people who are emboldened by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He willingly laid down his life so that you could be saved, so that you could be transformed by grace, that our response might not be fear, but faith. Faith in Jesus that leads to obedience. Even, or maybe perhaps, in the hard seasons of life. And faith is the last type of response that we see here in this section we study today. It's the response of the paralytic and of his friends. It's also possibly the response of the crowds there where they glorify God as a result. We see that they are realizing God's working, God's moving in Jesus, and it demands a response from them. And their response is heading in the right direction. They glorify God. We don't know whether the crowd was truly exercising faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but that's the ultimate response that we are to be driven towards as human beings. We need Christ. We need to, to believe in him and to follow him. So that's the, that's the response I'm calling you to this morning. And as you're here, as you're listening, as you're hopefully evaluating, what's my response to King Jesus? My encouragement to you is to let faith, not fear, drive how you live each day. There's plenty of things to be fearful over, but Jesus is superior to them all. He's supreme in status, power, and authority. So don't let a global pandemic and all the voices of the media control you. Don't let the noise of an election year control you. Don't let the pressures of your workplace or even the perceived expectation from other humans in your life control you. Don't let yourself be crippled by the fears that stem from believing lies. Don't let those things have control over you. Don't let the trials and the suffering that you're facing have the final say in how you think, speak, and act. All of those things must bow the knee to King Jesus. He is supreme, not them. And if you're united to Christ by faith in him, well, you're united to the supreme one the one who's greater than your fears, the one who's greater than your trials, the one who's greater than your afflictions. So let him rule and reign in your life. Confess your fears to him. Cry out to him with the burdens that you're bearing. Trust in him. Rest in him. We read Matthew 11 earlier in the worship set. Come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus delights to carry your burdens. He delights to forgive you when you ask him. And his supreme status, power, and authority 
allow him to force trials to do good to you. And his supremacy that's at work in you as a Christian is what guarantees that he will continue and finish the work that he started and that he will see you in heaven one day. Those are great hopes. And so I, you know, like I said earlier, I hope no matter what you came in in with this morning, that you would recognize that Jesus will exercise his supremacy for the good of those who are his people. Your circumstances, your situation are not the greatest thing in your life. Jesus is. So study these truths. Remember these truths. Allow them to soak and saturate into your life, into your thinking. Because faith in Christ drives out fear. He is greater. And it's our privilege to know him and to worship him. Let's close with a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for the privilege of knowing you, the one who is above all else. And we just beg of you this morning that you would help us to remember who you are and what you've done. Thank you that you have allowed this gospel to be written so that we might read it, so that we might learn from it, so that we might benefit from knowing you and being able to follow you. And that's my prayer this morning, that for all of us who are listening, whether here in person or online, that we would consider what is our response to your supremacy. There's no one else worthy of our worship. Our circumstances, the lies of the enemy, the lies of our own flesh are not worthy of putting on the throne of our heart. They shouldn't rule us. You should. So would you help us, Lord, to bow the knee and to believe the truth and to worship you for who you are and what you've done. It's my prayer that if there's anyone who has not yet done that in their life, that they would wrestle with the things that are hindering their faith. That they would exchange doubts and fears for faith in Jesus Christ. And for those who are here and who are listening, who are Christians, but yet finding themselves crippled by these things that we've talked about this morning, that they would exchange those things, the the lies of the enemy, the lies of the flesh, for the truth of Jesus. That they would find joy and freedom and rest your powerful presence. You didn't promise an easy life as we followed you, Lord, but you did, you did promise rest. You did promise the hope of heaven, and those are great things to cling to in the midst of present trials. Help us, Lord, to do that today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing to our great God. Amen.